we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting. This week, I'm happy to say that we have John Steinberg on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, All the Tsar's Men, Russia's General Staff, and the Fate of the Empire. Eight. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting. This week I'm happy to say that we have John Steinberg on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, All the Tsar's Men, Russia's General Staff, and the Fate of the Empire, 1898-1914. In my humble opinion, the most important political event of the 20th century was the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. A lot of attention has been paid to its origins, progress, and results. The conclusion of all that research about origins is that it was largely successful because of the disastrous state of the Russian Empire after its defeat in World War I, if defeat is the right word. The Tsar's armies had not done terribly well everywhere. The expense of the war in gold and men had proven too much for it to bear. This caused a lot of civil unrest, and that created the conditions under which the Bolsheviks could seize power. So that's been well studied. What's interesting is that the Russian defeat itself has not been well studied. There are people who study the Russian army in the second half of the 19th and early part of the 20th century, but there really aren't very many of them. One of them is John Steinberg, who wrote this book. And it's very eye-opening because it gives you an insight into 
again, what is probably the second most important event of the 20th century because it led to the first, and that is, in fact, the defeat of the Russian army in the period 1914 to 1917. Uh, it's a terrific book, and I, I recommend that you read it. I really enjoyed my conversation with John today. He's an old friend. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, John. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I am good. And yourself? Uh, I'm very well, thank you very much. It's a beautiful summer day here in Iowa. You're in Georgia, yes? Actually, I'm in Tennessee. Really? I did not know that. And how's Tennessee? Yes. I live in Tennessee because that's where my wife teaches. Oh, I didn't know that. How do you like yes, that? Yes, yes, yes. Didn't know that. Well, I should tell our listeners that we're talking to John Steinberg today about his terrific new book, All the Tsar's Men, Russia's General Staff and the Fate of the Empire, 1898 to 1914. I've known John for many, many years, and I uh, admire his work, and I admire him, if, if he doesn't mind me saying that. Uh, he's, he and I have, uh, have had a lot of good talks, and he's been a supportive friend over these many years. And so I, when I saw the book, I said, i got to interview John, just because I want to talk to him, and because I think you listeners will be interested in hearing uh, what he has to say. Why don't you begin the interview, John, by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm not much on talking about myself, but uh, I guess what I could share is is that uh, I'm an old Midwesterner. I was born and raised in St. Louis, uh, and to avoid going to college with all the people I went to high school with, I ended up going to the University of Kansas. And it was out in Kansas where I was first, uh, how should I say, exposed to Russian history under the uh, tutelage of John T. Alexander and Norman Saul. And I should add that I did a lot of work with Anna Chinchala, the uh, Eastern European historian at the University of Kansas, and uh, developed a passion for this type of history. At a time when it was a good passion to have because there was all sorts of federal support <laughs> study in the field. And I uh, like to share with my students that I am actually a veteran of the Cold War because there were all those resources to study Russian history at that time. Uh, because, uh, and especially thanks to Ronald Reagan and his statement about the evil empire. That really set the field up well for federal funding throughout the 80s. And that is largely how I financed my uh, college education. Uh, so I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Kansas, and uh, as I was finishing that degree, this, this uh, fascination with Russian history was really maturing. And uh, I was looking into graduate schools, and I needed to study language. That's where I needed to start, because I had none at this point. So subsequently, uh, I discovered that the University of Kansas had a very fine Russian language department, and I stayed there for my master's degree and uh, did my initial studies in Russian out of that department. Um, uh, as I was finishing up my master's degree, though, my research interests were uh, moving towards military history. Um, and uh, some, some uh, careerists would argue that what I did next was entirely wrong. <laughs> but intellectually, I will never regret the decision that I made. And that was um, to, to move to Ohio State. 
uh, and I chose to go to Ohio State specifically to study under a man named Alan Wildman. Uh, and, you know, this is one of those stories where I read his book, and was and the book that I read at that time was the first volume of his two-volume study on the end of the Imperial Russian Army. So this would have been like 1980, 1981, somewhere in there. And uh, I felt that that book was absolutely the best book I had ever read in my life. Now, whether that's true or not, it's a whole nother matter, but it was very influential. And uh, so I applied to go to Ohio State, and uh, one thing led to another. And in uh, the fall of 1982, I found myself enrolling at Ohio State. And once again, I guess you could say serendipity played a certain role here. Uh, I was very interested in uh, military history. Uh, the thinking I had at that time was that I would become a Soviet military analyst. The Cold War would last forever, and I would always have a job. Perhaps shallow thinking, but it was nonetheless the best I could muster at that point in my life. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the beautiful irony of this story is, is that I followed through with the plan, and wrote a dissertation on the education and training of the Russian general staff, of which this book, we could argue, is a spin-off from that. Um, uh, so, so the point I'm trying to make is, is I got to Ohio State, and I didn't realize going into that program that one of the things it was trying to do at that time, and I think it did do during the 1980s, was emerge as one of the best military history programs in the country. And so as a result, I had very fine training as a military historian um, uh, under some very good people, of which, uh, you know, in some ways, you could argue Alan Wildman was not one of them, because his first love, his real passion, was uh, social history. Mm -hmm. And when you read his books on the Army in 1917, he's really telling the story of the soldiers and how they uh, drifted towards uh, revolutionary activism. Uh, it's not conventional military history by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but, but to Alan's credit, he insisted as I was doing my work on the Russian general staff that I had to uh, take the military history courses uh, that were being offered at Ohio State. Uh, so I really feel like I benefited uh, strongly, not only from his training as a historian, but also from his advice on how to, how to uh, develop my, my broader fields, which is, you know, I use to this day. Mm -hmm. So those, for those of you interested in going uh, to graduate school, I think I can still say that Ohio State has the premier military history program in the United States, don't they? Am I wrong? Yes, yeah. I, I, I would argue that. Of course, now I'm biased. Um, well, I'm not. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I would have to, I would have to think real hard about uh, where to advise someone to go to if they did not want to go to Ohio State. Yeah. And wanted to do military history. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, why don't we um, begin talking a little bit about the the book? Um, I'd like you to tell us to begin with, since I think a lot of people won't know, what's a general staff? <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, 
Excuse me. And, and uh, where do they come from? Do we have one in the United States? I... Well, you know, I, I get into interesting conversations with people about this uh, in the military today, and they will want to tell you, no, we don't have a general staff per se. Uh, because in a traditional sense, I suppose we don't. We have something called the Combined Chiefs, uh, which is a, I would say, an outgrowth of general staff uh, thinking. Um, what is a general staff? A general staff is a, uh, it's mainly an administrative slash organizational uh, slash management unit that oversees all of the activities of a military establishment. General staffs come out of the Napoleonic period. Uh, I mean, you can argue that there are embryos of general staffs before the Napoleonic period, but what you what you have what everybody has to agree with is because the size of battles got so big thanks to Napoleon, no one general could command everything. You know, the age of the great captain ended with the Napoleonic period in history. And so what that great captain was replaced with was a command staff that had certain tasks and responsibilities that evolved over the 19th century into they become the people who plan for the next war. And then once the next war breaks out, their job is to oversee uh, not necessarily command of the army in the field, although that's often what they all wanted to do in order to secure their reputations, but to oversee the management of supplies, uh, both human and uh, material supplies, uh, the management in terms of them being utilized in the most expedient fashion in order to deliver victory on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. So it really is about about the uh, uh, a command unit that is responsible for overseeing everything that happens in a nation when it goes to war. Mm -hmm. And of course there's tremendous struggle between um, civilian control and military control over how these assets are going to be deployed. And that struggle is something that will haunt the Europeans and specifically uh, the czarist uh, military establishment until the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, let, me, and the, uh, sorry, let me ask a follow-up question about general staffs before we move on to them. Um, in the European context, as general staffs spread around Europe, how are, they, uh, how are the people in the general staff recruited and trained, generally mm. speaking? Mm. Another very good question, because it's going to vary from country to country. Okay? Um, but generally speaking, recruitment is a, is a hot-button issue for these guys, because they... Um, Command staffs of armies before the Napoleonic period are all the are all the king's aristocrats. Okay. Mm -hmm. After the Napoleonic period, we go into the age of professionalism, and general staff officers come to epitomize the modern idea of professionalism. And so, how do they become general staff officers? Through military educational institutions. Every country 
including even the British, have some formation, some type of what we could call General Staff Academy. And uh, these uh, academies are to provide not only the education in terms of going to his classes and learning everything from the military history of your country to the military capabilities of all the other great powers, so to speak, uh, potential adversaries. Uh, that all is all happening in the classroom. But as the 19th century unfolds, well, and, and the Germans lead the way here, what they come to realize is, is that all the book learning in the world doesn't help you once you get onto the battlefield. And so through the 19th century, we witnessed the emergence of really sophisticated uh, peacetime maneuvers, war games, staff rides. And each one of these exercises have different goals in mind. But together, what they're designed to do is provide emerging staff officers with the know-how, uh, not just the intellect, but also the know-how of how to move armies on and off the battlefield. Mm -hmm. So the names of some of these military academies might be familiar to some people. West Point is one of them, and it was founded around, I don't know, around 1800, wasn't it? A little bit later? Mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't remember when it was founded, yeah. but... but um, you know, is it, it, did the English have one? Is it called Sandhurst or something? I can't remember. Uh, the English developed their Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, the Germans have their Kriegs Academy. Yeah. The Russian is the Imperial War Academy, which becomes the Nicholas Academy of the General Staff. And then the French have the École Normale or the École Normale de Guerre or something like that. I can't remember what it's called. It's the École uh, Supérieure. Supérieure, yeah, de Guerre. Yeah, yeah I just, we just interviewed somebody uh, who wrote a very good book on Dreyfus, and uh, he's a good example of this intersection of professionalism and the development of general staffs because, you know, he was – Dreyfus was basically a Jew from the Alsace, so he was really, in a sense, uh, not French in a number of ways. Uh, but he managed to boot him he, – he really bootstrapped himself through the – the uh, the Ecole Supérieure de Guerre um, in, into the French general staff, where then of course he was uh, kind of yeah. the victim but, of the conspiracy. Uh, he he is a good example of of a point that should be understood, and that was as the 19th century progresses, it shouldn't matter what your social, religious, ethnic background is, according to the what should we say the idea behind professionalism. It's it's about capabilities. Mm -hmm. It's not about where you came from. It's about what you're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the French are probably the best at opening up their staff academies and their general staff itself to all citizens of the nation. Uh, but the, the, uh, the Russians and uh, to a lesser degree the Germans are still very much stuck in we have to give these best command billets to the skians of families that go back to God knows when. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is really a serious issue for the Russian army. Yeah, no, it was, a, uh, it was a tough thing to negotiate in those areas where the aristocracy was still a large and viable political force, which was the case in Russia and in Prussia. Yeah. Um, so when did the Russians get their, uh, uh, their military academy, and what, what is it, where is it? Okay, the, uh, the Russian Military Academy was established in 1832. Now, now here we have an interesting story uh, that runs counter to, 
to, shall we say, standard historiographic belief. And that is that academy was founded by Nicholas I in reaction to the performance of his army in a Russo-Turkish war that's fought in 1828-1829. The army, as far as Nicholas is concerned, is far too sluggish and moving on and off the battlefield. It has gotten too big for any one commander to take on the whole task. And so he invites a former Napoleonic uh, general, General uh, uh, Jomini, to come to Russia and establish a staff academy. And this becomes known as the Imperial Military Academy. So it's founded by Nicholas I in reaction to a successful military campaign, but one that he feels uh, reveals weaknesses within his army. Uh, and, you know, this, this runs counter to the idea of Nicholas being the first soldier of the army and he knew best about everything. I guess you could argue he did know best. He knew that he needed something more, something beyond what was already in place, something beyond his Imperial Guards officer corps that had commanded the army since Peter the Great. Mm -hmm. The problem was the Imperial Guards officers were opposed to this move. And so while Germany comes in with Western ideas and tries to rationalize an educational institution to provide men with the information they would need, the people on the ground in St. Petersburg, where this is all happening, managed to uh, infuse a large amount of, uh, oh, I guess we'll call it parade ground presence into the education of these first general staff officers in Russia. And by that, I mean they make this business of... of uh, of the pass and review far too important. Mm -hmm. They give far too much value to that. This whole business of making sure that they look right on the parade ground mm -hmm. as opposed to learning what they needed to learn and then very giving them the very real power they needed to command these armies when the time came. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, the creation of a, uh, a general staff and of an academy to teach them um, proceeds in the 1830s. Uh, and then, if I'm not incorrect, if my memory serves, the next major encounter that the Russians have is the Crimean War, and it does not go well. I guess that's putting well, it mildly. <laughs> You're laughing, I think. Yeah. The, uh, there's, there's two things that I can say in response to that. One is, is, you're absolutely correct. Um, the Crimean War demonstrates that the Russians have fallen behind uh, technologically from uh, the Western powers, uh, especially the British and the French. Uh, when you read about this war, I mean, everything from the ability to mobilize, which was a, you know, the central task of the general staff, uh, they had not considered mobilizing to the south uh, against a, a foe that could mobilize much more rapidly than they could. In other words, the British and French, using steamships, get to the Crimea much faster than the <laughs> Russian army, which is walking. Okay, yeah, that's a, and, that's a know, pretty remarkable they, fact. We just have to well, pause it, there for a second. 
it's even more remarkable when you think about the fact that Nicholas I is opposed to building railroads. <laughs> uh, that the, the you know an, an empire like Russia cannot cannot exist without railroads. Uh, that's a stunning fact in itself. But the other the other thing that's going on here that is often overlooked uh, within the general public. Is, is that this is also a time when the Russian army is building an empire. And so if you study the soldiers who fought in Nicholas I's army uh, before the Crimean War, those who have significant combat experience are getting it fighting mainly in the Caucasus, mm-hmm. where they're pacifying uh, rebellion and ultimately will will subjugate the people of the Caucasus to the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are developing techniques for, shall we say, colonial conflict that will be well used through the 1860s and 70s when they essentially subjugate Central Asia and drive further east towards Manchuria. Um, so this is an army that's doing well against colonial troops or against, you know, what, sh- what should we call them? Uh, irregular armies that are not well organized in Western terms, but cannot stand up to Western armies. And because they cannot stand up to Western armies, uh, we enter into the era of the great reforms, uh, in which, you know, without a doubt, the, the signature reform of that period is the emancipation of the serfs. Mm-hmm. But and one of the one of the amazing things and I, I want to contextualize this properly is uh, God in the late 90s I attended a conference with uh, military Russian military historians at the Woodrow Wilson Center and it was a three-day conference uh, that culminated with a the publication of a book called reforming the Tsar's army great articles in that book but the point I'm trying to make here is, is at the end of that conference, one of the people commented that we had presented 15 papers and like 12 or 13 of them all began by telling the story of Dmitry Milyutin, and the, uh, who was the war minister of Alexander II during the age of the Great Reforms. Mm-hmm. And it is Milyutin who uh, is largely responsible for creating Russia's nation in arms uh, in Western terms, of which the key to that was uh, the Universal Military Conscription Law of 1874. That Universal Military Conscription Law is going to triple the size of the army, which means they need a lot more officers. So Milyutin, uh, in, in addition to everything else that he does, completely overhauls uh, Russia's military educational institutions. Today's world, we call them professional military institutions. And, you know, every country has them. Every country had them then. Every country has them today. Um, but the, the aim of Milyutin's reforms was to eliminate the favoritism given to the uh, children of the nobility simply because the nobility could not provide enough officers uh, to, for, the, for the imperial army. So, if we go back to our friends in the general staff, um, 
in in the 1850s, if you look at the number of students enrolled in the Imperial Military Academy, uh, enrollments might in any year, given year range, if we're, if we're looking at the incoming class, the numbers are between, say, 30 to 50. By the time Milyutin is done reforming uh, the entire uh, general staff educational experience, he has now created an institution that can take up to 300 students in the incoming class. So there you have it. Mm-hmm. I see. So the if we can move forward just a little bit, the next time the uh, Russian army finds itself in uh, major action is the Russo-Turkish War of 1870-something, I can't remember, and things go better. Yeah, things go better, but still, this is 1877-78. Uh, what's discovered in that war is, is that they now have uh, uh, better educational institutions and smarter officers but there is still persistent meddling by, let's, let's call them aristocratic dilettantes that make this army stumble on an operational level. It really boils down to what's happening here is your top commanders remain these aristocrats who do not have this professional military education, and their underlings are staff officers who realize they're doing everything wrong. And, you know, this, I love to compare this to, you know, college professors who understand how the world works, but they have to work for deans and provosts who don't. <laughs> and, and the end result is just sheer lunacy, sheer idiocy. And, you know, what suffers the most is uh, education. Right? Well, in the military sector, what suffers the most is victory. In other words, yeah. <laughs> you don't win. Now, they do prevail in 1877-78, but consider this. The official history of this war is is not really published until after the beginning of the 20th century. And the official history is something like six or eight volumes long, but there are 96 volumes of appendixes. The issue here is is that when the general staff officers on the historical commission who are charged with studying this war look at what happened, they discover that the command decisions made are faulty, and they are often made by either members of the Romanov family or by generals who come out of the imperial suite, which is, you know, the place where all the aristocrats sit around. And it's hard for me to envision exactly what they do. But the imperial suite, of course, are the generals who are closest to the czar. And they are political generals right up until a war breaks out when they want to go and achieve glory on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At the turn of the century, there was a series of lectures given at the Staff Academy. And I'd really have to go chasing down. It may have been in the 1890s. They were led by a a general named Martinov, E.I. Martinov, and he is very critical of the imperial family, uh, specifically in these lectures that he gives at the Staff Academy. And, of course, the next thing you know, he's no longer in St. Petersburg. Martinov is one of the better minds of the Russian general staff at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, what message does this send when you have 
one of the recognized intellects of the general staff giving lectures, and for that he is censored and moved out of the imperial capital. I mean, what, what type of message does that send to the other professionals on the staff? Uh, and to me, it's, it's just a little example of the types of problems these guys had to mm -hmm. wrestle with until the collapse of the regime. It never really stops, that type of meddling by uh, uh, less than professional officers never really stops. Mm -hmm. I see, yeah. So your book actually picks up um, in 1898 and begins yeah. to discuss uh, attempts to reform, educate, and train a new general staff. Why 1898? Uh, I chose 1898 because that's when uh, Kuropatkin becomes war minister. Mm -hmm. And talk a little bit about him. Well, the thing about Kuropatkin is is that he is the first war minister who comes out of the uh, milieu of schools that Milyutin creates. Okay, and he is a smart guy. Uh, there is no question that he has always been at the top of his class. He is from um, not high nobility, we'll say lesser nobility. Really don't want to get into a conversation about the various classes of nobility within the Russian Empire, because as you know better than me, it gets to be convoluted and complicated <laughs> in a big hurry. But you know, this this is not one of the grand old families of the empire. Um, but he does emerge nonetheless because he's one of the best and the brightest. But where does he develop his reputation? He develops it as a teacher in the General Staff Academy, and he develops it as, a, as an officer in the field in the conquest of Central Asia, primarily in the 1870s. Okay? Uh, and so he is the first war minister who, uh, unless you want to, you know, you know the, the trajectory here is, is that Milyutin's war minister from 1861 to 1881, then a guy named Vinovsky is war minister from 1881 until 1898. Vinovsky is one of these old guards officers who cannot eliminate the impact of Milyutin's reforms, cannot... He, he's able to, to try to at least pay lip service to the nobility, but he can't eliminate this idea that the Russian army needs the best possible people it can be to be their officers. And, and Kuropatkin is the product of this process. Mm -hmm. So he's a, he's a product of the system. What does he want to do? What does he want to do? Kuropatkin, yeah. What he wants to do, what he understands as he becomes war minister is that the key, if there is a key, to upgrading operational capabilities, which everybody understands, I mean by everybody, everybody across Europe understands, is the shortcoming of this huge Russian army, uh, is to upgrade the whole process of, of uh, conducting uh, maneuvers, war games, and staff rides. Now, what do I mean by upgrade? Until Kuropatkin comes along, there is, it's, it's a given that the way this works is the best maneuvers, and by best I mean for your career purposes, the best maneuvers to participate in happen generally on one of the czar's estates outside of St. Petersburg. And when that maneuver happens, no matter what, 
whichever army the czar will end up commanding is the army that's going to win. Okay? And let me, if I, if I could just digress for a moment here. Please do. In, into the book and the sources, uh, because this is something that took me, it was kind of like, you know, breaking the code. Um, all of these maneuvers that happen, there is a mountain of material published in association with them. It begins with some type of perspective that is going to explain in general terms what this maneuver is going to be about. It progresses to actual orders that are given by everybody from the czar to uh, the war minister to the chief of staff to various commanding officers. You can find this stuff if you dig hard enough. Okay, and then there are after-action reports. Okay, and I, you know, I must have read somewhere between a half a dozen and a dozen of these uh, to establish in my own mind that no matter what, a certain pattern would develop whereby the time you were reading the after-action report, what you read was is that everything went off the way it was supposed to and everything was, you know, outstanding. Well, that's just really great, except that if everything is perfect, then you're not having an educational experience. Mm -hmm. You're having some preconceived uh, exercise designed to reinforce somebody's opinion of themselves or of the Army. And the way I was able to get around that was I went to France, which was really tough duty, living in Paris. For <laughs> and uh, uh, read the French uh, military attaché's assessment of these maneuvers. Mm -hmm. And the French military attaché was a man named Moulin. And he was in Russia for over 20 years. His story is a very interesting story. Uh, he, he must have had a Russian wife. It's the only way the story makes sense. Because he literally spent the last, oh, half to third of his life living in Russia. He must have been absolutely fluent in the language. You know from his reports that he had access to first Alexander III and then Nicholas II. Um, he dies like in 1906, very suddenly. Uh, so until then, you have these these really, uh, what shall we say, eye-opening reports in which you can go to the Russian sources and everything is perfect, but you read this man's evaluation of the maneuver he just saw, and you know everything is not perfect. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who spelled it out for me that the problem was constant meddling, which prevented any type of uh, real instruction from happening unless Unless, and here, here, is, here is the Kuropotkin innovation. Well, what you have to do is conduct your maneuvers outside of the vision of the czar. I mean, literally, the vision. The czar cannot be around. His imperial suite does not need to be around. Uh, and, of course, this is bitterly resented that the war minister is conducting maneuvers without using those maneuvers to further the career of the insiders. Mm -hmm. Kropotkin introduces maneuvers at military district levels that he is paying attention to for the purpose of evaluating the capabilities of soldiers. Mm -hmm. uh, he starts this off 
doing uh, just small maneuvers, but he's agitating the whole time for conducting a grand maneuver in which you would put various army units together. In other words, compose a combined army and put it on the field against another combined army and see what would happen. And he finally does that with the grand maneuver at Kursk in 1902. But he cannot do it without bringing the czar into it. And again, when you, you know, I, I hate to say read the book, but if you read the book, you will learn that in doing this, he, he, he does have his instructive maneuver, but he also makes several enemies in doing it that will contribute to his downfall, although nobody will contribute more to Kropotkin's downfall than himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So one of the things I think that uh, we need to talk about just a little bit, since we've discussed meddling by the imperial family, there's also a biographical moment here, and that is the personal predilections of Nicholas II. He uh, liked to think of himself as a military man, didn't he? So he didn't think of it as meddling. No, in fact, Nicholas II uh, was, he would, he would uh, reveal to his relatives that the happiest days of his life was when he was Tsarevich and uh, uh, attached to the Preobrazhensky Regiment, which is the uh, guards regiment that any member of the imperial family was attached to. And what he liked best about that was is that he was treated like everybody else. And if you read this, you, you really will start to feel sorry for Nicholas. <laughs> You'll appreciate just how far in over his head he, he was. And I think it's something he understood. Yeah. But it was something that he could do nothing about. In other words, there was no way he was going to throw up his hands and say, I can't do this job, I won't be the czar. There's no way he was going to do that. That's what he needed to do, but yeah. no way was that going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and out of respect to the people in the military, Nicholas never <clears throat> promoted himself to general. He dies a colonel of the Preobrazhensky Regiment. Uh, even to the point of when he takes over as commander-in-chief of the Imperial Army in 1915 in the midst of World War One, he does that in his mind strictly for ceremonial purposes. That is, he needs to step forward and say, I am the man who is commanding this army that is suffering. We will go down together, which they did, or we will win together. But he is smart enough to know that he needs to be surrounded by his best general staff officers in order to have a prayer, mm-hmm. which obviously they did. Well, it's interesting because one of the cliches that you learn, I think, as an undergraduate or maybe even as a graduate, I, I imagine this is taught a lot. Uh, uh, and and uh, I, I don't really teach a lot of Russian history anymore, but if I did, I would probably say it, and that is we tend to tell our students that Nicholas was first and foremost a family man. But I, the, the impression I got from your book is that he really did think of himself as a kind of a, a military man, that he this, this, was, this was where he wanted to be. He thought it was his calling. Is that right? Yeah, I think that is right. Yeah, that, and that really does change things a little bit. I mean, one of the, <laughs> one of the ironies here of this dual image that is a military man and a family man is where they intersect. He had all these uncles who uh, would, uh, I don't know, it, it reminded me of uh, Thanksgiving. I just, it was very unpleasant. These, these, uh, these relatives he had who really made his life kind of miserable. Maybe you could talk about them. Oh, think about it like this. 
he had these, some of them were uncles, some of them were cousins, who had lived their whole lives being so close to the throne, yet knowing that they would never have it. Uh, that they were intensely frustrated people. And on top of that, they were Romanovs. So they didn't have to work for anything. And there is an element of true Shakespearean tragedy here. So I think if these people had not been so worthless, if they had done more to help him and help the regime, who knows what would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, most of these uncles, the way they were pacified, was they were made inspector generals of the various branches of the military, which was absolutely uh, uh, counterproductive, I'll say, unprofessional, because these guys didn't have the training to be inspector general of, say, the cavalry or uh, or the artillery. They didn't understand the technology or the, uh, the, the technology of, of the branch that they were uh, inspecting, quote-unquote, or they rarely understood the uh, tactical or strategic significance of the branch of service. Uh, only one of these uh, uh, relatives uh, had attended the General Staff Academy, and this was the Grand Duke uh, Nikolai Nikolaevich. Before that, he's probably the most famous of this lot of people. I like your your bad Thanksgiving analogy, because I think it's true. Uh, Nicholas II was poorly served by his own flesh and blood. Yeah, yeah. And it really does contribute to his problems. And yeah. it's the last thing he needed. Yeah. So uh, the new system, insofar as it's a new system, uh, is tested in um, 1904-05 during the Russo-Japanese War. I think it started, when does it start? I can't remember. Four or five? Uh, it starts in 04. Okay. And, and uh, what, yeah, what happens uh, there? Hmm. Nothing very good. Uh, nothing very good. Uh, you know, the first thing, first thing you have to argue is this war, uh, the, the key component of this war is control of the sea. And it's the first thing the Russians surrender. And not only do they surrender it, but they're completely intimidated by it, uh, by their enemy, the Japanese. The fact of the matter is, is that the, and this is something that's really not well understood in the historiography, is yes, this war begins when the Japanese launch a surprise attack on the Russian fleet at Port Arthur in February of 1904. Uh, And so when we in the West read about this, we think of devastating Japanese surprise attack as in December 7, 1941. The Japanese were not nearly as successful in February 1904 as they were in December of 41. Their victory in 1904 was largely psychological. Uh, Largely, you know, the Russians were left with, who do these people think they are? And I literally mean that for all of its condescension. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the, the Russians first did not take the Japanese seriously. They would not begin to take the Japanese seriously until they have their first major land battle with them, which is in April of 04. Uh, in April of 04, they, they meet a Japanese army on the Yalu River. 
And, I mean, everything that can go wrong for the Russians goes wrong. I blame it largely on the fact that the Russians essentially do not have their their command structure worked out, and there's absolutely no excuse for this. Uh, they essentially have two men in the field in April 1904 who believe they are in command of the Russian army. Okay? Yeah, I mean, at, at a certain level, and I've joked about this with other Russian military historians, the analogy is not a bad Thanksgiving. It's more like a bad Three Stooges. <laughs> and the only reason why you can't laugh too hard is because men die yeah. because of this folly. But, I mean, this is, and, and part of the problem here is Kuropopkin, who, when war breaks out, resigns as war minister, begs the Tsar for command of the operational army, which Nicholas gives him largely to get him out of St. Petersburg, where he has just made too many enemies among the uh, commanders of the Imperial Guards regiments. Uh, so Kuropotkin heads out to the Far East where there is a viceroy who is an admiral named Alexeyev. He is the bastard son of, Nick, of Alexander II. So he is Nicholas II's uncle. And uh, Alexeyev believes he's in command of the theater of operation. Kuropotkin gets out there in March and says, no, I'm, I'm commander of the theater of operation. And in this age before cellular technology, these two are having this argument, which can only be resolved by the Tsar in St. Petersburg, while they're engaging an enemy on the battlefield. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, that should be an upset right there. Yeah, not, ver not very good command and control there. I think that's what we're right. now. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the thrust of what I say in my book. Yeah. Now... Interestingly enough, one of the things that we always say is, is that the Japanese had this army that was full of, of uh, a land, full of spirit, full of fight, ready to go and die for their emperor. And uh, that is not the case of the Russian army at all. Um, Russian soldiers perform well right up until their officers uh, get wounded or killed, and then they stop fighting. Uh, the thing I want to throw in here is, is I am I am right now reading a book about the Japanese army in the Russo-Japanese War by a, a scholar who's at uh, oh one of the uh, one of the colleges in, uh, associated with Oxford, I think. Her name is Shimatsu, and her book is I can't remember the title, but it's about the uh, Russia or Japanese society during the Russo-Japanese War. And she is putting forth a convincing argument that the Japanese soldiers were not one, nor was Japanese society 100% behind this war. Mm -hmm. In fact, they were having their own difficulties as, as casualties mounted. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, I think our impressions of this war are still evolving, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, it's a bit understudied, if I could yeah. just venture that editorial comment. So, uh, but the Russians get whipped, or at least that's what they perceive. They they are very disappointed with the performance of both the fleet and the army. A, uh, a I think what we can justifiably call a revolution breaks out. 
Um, and uh, what, what is the military response to this? What does the military try to do? What does Nicholas II try to do in order to reform the situation to make sure that it doesn't happen again? Well, once the, uh, the revolutionary unrest is suppressed, and that's going to take two years in and of itself, uh, there is a large body of information published uh, that is self-critical of, uh, of what happens in in uh, Manchuria. And instead of spending decades writing an official history, oh gosh, I want to say the official history of that war, they start publishing it in 1909, and it's done in 1911. And it's done by these general staff officers and uh, it's a very good uh, critical history of their operations. So what do they have to do? What they have come to realize is, is, is uh, oh, what any of these military attaches saw in the pre-war period, that is, influence within the Army has to go to the military professionals. So one of the first things they try is to uh, reform the organization of the army uh, with the idea of copying the German model, uh, which means that you're going to create an all-powerful chief of staff. And this chief of staff of the army, who is going to be a general staff officer, and this chief of staff should have overall operational control of the army. Not the war minister, not the czar, but a chief of staff. And the chief of staff's job will be to train this army and prepare it for the next war. So the chief of staff was supposed to, in this new brave new world, go back to the war minister and say, here's what I need to to fight, you know, the next war. It is very, uh, if you think about it, in today's world, if you were to go to the Pentagon, and gaining access into its, you know, secret recesses, uh, you would find that there is a war plan in a three-ring notebook uh, for any scenario. Well, hopefully they don't have, hopefully these scenarios are on computers now. I always think of the old three-ring notebooks. Uh, yeah, I do too. They would break out. Um, uh, for any feasible scenario out there, in other words, you want to go to war with Iraq, we have a, we have a war plan already. Mm-hmm. And in the course of creating that war plan, you're going to decide who's going to be in command from day one. Mm-hmm. And this would be predetermined. The Russians are trying to move toward this. Okay, but still too much meddling. And so in 1905, under the leadership of this Grand Duke, Nikolai Nikolaevich, they created a Supreme War Council, and that Supreme War Council is supposed to support a Chief of General Staff, and that Chief of General Staff is supposed to have the right to report directly to the Tsar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the prime administrative reform. But by 1909, it's completely undone, and they go back to their old ways. And here you get wrapped up in the history of the Duma, Russia's parliament, and the relationship between the Duma, the military, and the Tsar. 
and where things just come grinding to a halt is over budgetary issues. Duma politicians believe that if they're responsible politicians, then they control the state's budget, which Nicholas II never intended for. And where they really conflict over this is over military matters. And specifically where they conflict is over the construction of a new navy. Uh, we didn't talk about this, but the Russians managed to lose two navies in the Russo-Japanese War. Mm -hmm. And for them to prevail as a great power, they need to build new ships in the post-war period, which is an interesting task for an empire that essentially bankrupts itself fighting out in Asia and then loses the war. Um, when the Tsar announces that he's going to build a new fleet, the Duma politicians go berserk over the fact that the same people who commanded the Navy in 1904-05 are still in place in 1909-1910 when this new fleet is going to be built. And they're like, how can we do this? And the Tsar's reaction to that is to, uh, I think the literature likes to portray it as these guys, these Duma politicians touched the Tsar's rawest nerve. And in so doing, the Tsar seizes control of the military budget and goes back to the old ways, which means that he becomes dependent on a war minister, not a chief of staff mm -hmm. for all things military. And at the same time, though, that all of this is going on at the highest levels of, of the empire, you have a dedicated staff of professional uh, general staff officers who continue in the Kuropatkin spirit of conducting small-scale maneuvers outside of the, you know, vision of the, of the czar and his minions trying to upgrade operational standards. And there's another big brouhaha over what type of things people should be learning at the staff academy. Uh, it should be more specialized as opposed to a universal military education. That was a huge debate going on between 1905 and 1914. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And none of that's ever really genuinely resolved because there's, you know, not enough time. Mm -hmm. World War I is upon them before there can be any type of systemic reform in the post-Japanese war period. Mm -hmm. uh, World War I is a little bit outside the – of course, it's outside the scope of the book. But since I, I have an expert on the phone, I, I want to ask some questions that I, I don't think I've ever asked a military historian, a Russian military historian about. Um, one uh, is it, – it, this is – this it, it bears on the topic of the book, but it's a cliche that we hear all the time, and you'll find it in every textbook, and that is that once the Russians started to mobilize in 1914, they couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. Is that true? <sighs> let, let me put it to you like this. Um, that question will be better answered in the next couple of years because of ongoing research that one of our senior colleagues, Bruce Manning, Manning is doing, specifically to go after that question. Um, the continuation of that cliche is, is that it couldn't be stopped because of the railroad schedules. Right. And I think that that pretty much is going to be discovered as myth. Uh, it, it is more, uh, again, 
you fall back on what you know best, okay? And what what I know best in reading all of this is is that the heart and soul of the Imperial Russian Army is in the fighting a war against the Austrians because the Austrians are their traditional enemy. The whole German adventure is prompted by the French. And it was, you know, it was their Downey Brook, the Russians' Downey Brook. They should have never, never gone on with that. Um, could it have been stopped once mobilization began? I would say that it probably could have, but nobody knew how to do it. So I guess <laughs> yeah. that means it couldn't. Have been. Couldn't have been. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Do well, you understand what I'm saying? I do exactly know what you're saying. Exactly what you're saying. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, I, see. I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, the, the, that's the kind of things that politicians say and get in trouble. But we're historians, so that won't be a problem. Yeah. The the um, the it was like it, it reminds me uh, for all the world of uh, I was uh, I was for it until I was against it, or I was against it until I was for it, or whatever he said. Yeah. The yeah. Um, uh, so, but anyway, question number two. Uh, now we also have this cliche that the Russians got trounced on the Eastern Front, but actually, I've looked into it a little bit myself, just a very little bit, and largely through the interviews in this show. That's really not quite true. Sometimes they did very well. Uh, how, how do we explain this inconsistency of performance? Um, well, uh, you know, the more common, most common explanation is is that the Russians could beat everybody but the Germans. That is, when they were dealing with strictly Austrian units or Turkish units, the Russians prevailed. As soon as the Germans showed up, they were better organized and uh, their troops were better trained and the Russians couldn't hold against them. Uh, the, the idea that they failed at everything uh, ironically comes largely out of the events of August 1914. And I say ironically because, yeah, the Russians got their butts kicked in East Prussia, but they did not on, on the southeastern front or southwestern front yeah. uh, where, they fought the, where they fought the Austrians. Mm -hmm. uh, they essentially take over uh, Austria, Galicia, uh, and uh, you know the, they're, they're, they own more of Poland in September 1914 than they've ever owned mm -hmm. uh, and this is because of their military victory mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now okay question number three uh, the, one of the things that we often say is that the, the, the Russian military collapsed I, I'm not quite ever sure what collapsed m means in 1914 17. What, what actually transpired? Did it collapse? Or There's a similar sort of debate about the German army a year later, that it sort of melts away. And I talked to a fellow about that, and he says it, it actually didn't melt away at all. It was just ordered to stand down, and it did. So what's the case in the, um, in the, in the Russian instance? Well, here I'm a, um, I am somewhat outspoken in my beliefs here. Well, that's what, that's, what we, that's what we have you on the show for. <laughs> well, uh, you're right. If, if I sit down, particularly with uh, military historians who call themselves World War One military historians, as far as they're concerned, the Russian army collapsed. Uh, and I will point out that if you read Norman Stone's, and this is a book that was published in the 70s, a book entitled simply The Eastern Front, he is looking at the flow of supplies and the flow of men going into the Russian front in the winter of 1916-1917. And he is saying for the first time in the war, the Russians are developing substantial majorities uh, in terms of men and materials. Uh, 
that are going to give them the advantage and that if the revolution had not come, this army could have prevailed in 1917. Now, I'm not a big Norman Stone fan, nor am I a big counterfactual history fan, but there is some food for thought there. Mm -hmm. uh, the Germans and the Austrians or the Turks, none of them defeat the Russian army in the spring of 1917 when this revolution occurs. The revolution was a political event with an army standing in the field at the front. Okay, you cannot say that they were defeated by the Germans uh, in 1917 until after the revolution. Mm -hmm. and, you know, after the revolution, you're talking a completely different game mm -hmm. because that revolution is what sparks men to to say, "Now wait a minute, what am I doing here?" And quite frankly, it's 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 a legal argument because the. Uh, the point of this is those guys were drafted by the Tsarist military establishment to fight a world war, to fight a war. Okay, mm -hmm. that establishment collapses with the regime, and even worse uh, in terms of of uh, stability versus chaos. The officer corps is depowered immediately. It's almost like they were decommissioned. Uh, with this infamous order number one of the Soviet, in which these you know shrewd left-wing politicians correctly point out that officers are empowered to command because of an oath they have given, or pardon me, they have taken, and that oath is to defend the czar. Well, the czar is no more, therefore mm -hmm. these guys no longer have command authority. Mm -hmm. That's what destroys the Tsarist army, mm -hmm. not the Germans. Yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned Norman Stone because the question was prompted by my interview with him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he, uh, he rehearsed that thesis uh, on, on this show. So happy to, happy, to, ha happy to give him a little bit of a plug. Um, John, let me, uh, we're, we're, uh, we've taken up a, a lot of your time, and I, I really, really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating conversation. Let me um, close the interview, if I may, with our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, there are, I actually have two projects, which means I can't do either well. <laughs> um, as, as you may know, Marshall, I did a huge, uh, it's, it's true, I did a huge international research project on the Russo-Japanese War mm -hmm. that published two volumes of collected essays in 2005, well, volume one was 2005, volume two, 2007. Um, when that was done, I had moved on to do a bit of research on uh, World War II history. Uh, specifically, what I was looking at was uh, the question of, uh, this, this gets kind of interesting here, uh, how, how uh, Soviet perpetrators of war crimes in the 1939 to 1941 period become the individuals who not only investigate, but also will end up prosecuting Soviet citizens who collaborated with the Germans, uh -huh. and I, or with the Nazis, I should say. And I am talking about uh, operatives of the NKVD, uh -huh. 
and I stumbled into this uh, because I was recruited to do research on the Holocaust in the Soviet Union uh, during World War II. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where this led me. This was just, you know, reading sources at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it fascinated me uh, as, a, as a Russian historian, mm -hmm. uh, not so much as a Holocaust historian. Okay, and so I was, I was working on this, and uh, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, but this work was, shall we say, interrupted by individuals who I had worked on the Russo-Japanese War Project with who, who came at me and said, we have to do something on World War I. And so that something on World War I is another international research project wow. that is called Russia's Great War and Revolution. Uh -huh. uh, and we envision publishing 15 books. Whoa! Yes, uh, on this, uh, this little escapade here. That literally began, in, you know, at a convention with uh, one American saying, "Oh, come on, we have to do this," and one Brit saying, "Oh, come on, we have to do this." Yeah, see, this is this is the John. This is exactly why I told you in the pre-interview. I don't go to conventions anymore because I get roped into a fifteen-volume project that would take the rest of my life. And I, I must admit uh, <laughs> that it, it really did. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what. They came at me and said, we got to do this, and I didn't really, uh, I didn't want to get involved in another big international collaborative research project. I had moved on. I really liked where it was going. Um, but, uh, oh, this, the next thing I'm going to say is terrible, is both the American and, and the Brit came up with funds. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Follow the money. And... The money talks. So at the end of this month, we're all headed to Sweden for the uh, International Slavic Conference, mm -hmm. ICSIS, as it is known. And uh, we're going to meet before that conference uh, with our peers and colleagues, largely because everybody's going to be there and continue the process on that. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds. Both those projects sound terrific. I, mean, the, the, I have to say, this the first one is really very intriguing to me, and uh, I hope you, I hope you pursue them both. But the first well, one, yeah. The uh, first one uh, is where the research is for me. The second one is, in some ways, you can argue a continuation of the research that I did for the book that we were talking uh -huh. about. Yeah. Uh, but I am far more. Uh, engaged on an administrative level in pulling that yeah. thing off I see. than uh, in, in the research. Well, John, I, I want to say again, thank you very much for talking with us today. It's been a really a terrific conversation. Uh, we've been talking to John Steinberg about his new book, All the Tsar's Men, Russia's General Staff and the Fate of the Empire, 1898 to 1914. John, thanks very much for being on the show. Hey, it has been my pleasure, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about the book. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with John Steinberg about his new book, All the Tsar's Men, Russia's General Staff, and the Fate of the Empire, 1898-1914. to I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 